Chapter 18 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 A Desert Ride, Imperial Valley to Yuma. The edge of cultivation is as sharply marked on the east side of Imperial Valley as on the west. The farthest ditch draws the line between green and gray. Beyond it, a long, dry march lay before me, with Yuma, on the Arizona side of the Colorado River, for my objective. In view of the great heat, made doubly trying by a high degree of humidity, I resolved for Cahuilla's sake to cover as much as possible of it by night. Leaving Holtville in the afternoon, I rode eastward a few miles to the farthest outpost of the canal system. The district number seven, as it is called, the valley being divided into numbered irrigation units, had a more attractive look than some localities I had seen, with better houses, bigger stacks of hay, and more frequent trees along the roads. To the south and west ran the long line of the Cocopas, today showing that smoky white hue that gives desert mountains their most weird appearance. I came to the last canal about sundown and fed Cahuilla at the haystack of a friendly rancher. His wife was away inside, but I was made welcome at the supper table where he and his two men exhibited their prowess at batching. Supper over, he and one of the hands loaded their pipes, took each a bottle of coffee and marched out to put in the night at irrigating, as it was their turn to use the water. The imperial farmer knows not day or night, the water schedule is his rule of life, for no water, no crops. I snatched a couple of hours sleep, waiting for the moon to rise, which it did about eleven o'clock. Then I watered Cahuilla and myself, filled my canteens, saddled up, and started. The half-moon gave a pleasant light, and though the night was sultry, it was a great improvement over the traveling conditions by day. I needed no sombrero, and, opening my shirt, made the most of the faint airs that came wandering over the plain that ran unbroken to the gulf, seventy miles away. In the uncertain light, the dunes took the semblance of creeping shapes, their long shadows black as ink on the pallid gray of the earth. A scant growth of creosote bush blurred the view, and the vagueness added to the impression of space and monotony that is inherent in these great levels. The mountain outlines far ahead could hardly be seen against the dimness of the sky. Only the stars and the climbing moon kept life in definition, and these held the mind with more than their wonted fascination. The sentiment of wonder, in its worthiest sense, finds little exercise in these days. Marvels of science and invention so crowd upon us that the faculty, kept at stretch, loses its elasticity. It is a pity, for along with wonder goes imagination and even reverence. In this stalling of the mind, whole tracts of life are left untouched with all their harvest of spiritual food. Novelty is a spice we cannot do without, but the great things are not novel. So, night by night, the motion picture shows are crammed, while, unless a comet comes along, and a big one too, the pageant of this brave or hanging firmament this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, is not thought worth a glance. As for Jocund Day standing tiptoe on the misty mountaintop, who's going to get out of bed for that? 
half an hour went silently by while Kawea kept up his steady pace i sometimes checked him while i let the silence and solitude possess me in the great indefinite space and under the full half-sphere of sky glittering with stars from zenith to horizon i might have been the sole inhabitant of the planet the faint momentary breeze seemed to come from an infinite distance was born perhaps in ceylon and had ranged over starlit oceans and untrodden asian peaks to pass me here then roam on and on and die maybe among the snows of spitzbergen geography took on a vital meaning ahead i seemed to look over the plains of texas to the eastern seaboard the bermudas the canaries europe with its struggling staggering nations i felt the draw of my own land the lodestone till death of every briton behind was the vastness of the pacific the welter of awakening china there lay the frozen tundra and there under friendly polaris the no longer defiant north pole as it drew toward morning the breeze came cooler and more steady growing to a low monotonous hum that seemed to intensify the silence no hoot of owl or yelp of coyote told of life and nature's interest in her children but for the moon that now cast our shadows beneath us or some meteor rushing to its fate kawea and i seemed to be the only moving creatures in the universe once or twice i missed the track and had to dismount and search carefully for traces of travel hardly visible on the pavement-like clay which we were crossing the creosote grew sparser and seemed on the verge of death the skinny arms waving in the breeze moved in ghostly rhythm like spectres at a dance macabre at length smears of cloud showed in the eastern sky as the dawn whitened behind them on the horizon a mountain line took form the first dull color stole in then quickly brightened and soon the sun came rushing up ploughing his way like a swimmer and sending beams to the zenith as if bragging of his power i went on for an hour in the hope of sighting some sizable bush for shade but only skimpy creosotes half a dozen to the acre and almost leafless kept on to infinity i stopped and gave kawea his breakfast crouching in his shadow while i ate my own we started on to take advantage of the comparative coolness miles went by in alternate sand and clay riding and leading half awake and half asleep until a ridge of dunes in front at last broke the interminable level it was the great belt of sand hills known as the algodones that stretched for forty miles southeasterly parallel with the chocolate mountains ending at the boundary line a few miles west of yuma at the nearer base of these dunes a well had recently been sunk by the county and here i hoped to find water i had ample for my own wants but Kawea was drooping already for the heat was atrocious and the humidity killing footnote a few days ago and a year after i crossed this tract i read in a los angeles newspaper of a man who had just been rescued hereabouts he was going from yuma to the imperial had missed the way and was found crazed with thirst and as usual naked crawling on his hands and knees about the sand dunes this is the third case of the kind that i have read of within the space of a month in footnote the wind had dropped and heavy clouds were climbing up from south and east i looked anxiously for signs of the well and reported the good news to kawea when a black speck appeared a mile away with a white dot near it 
signifying a tent. It was an hour before we arrived, but then fortune smiled for an employee of the county road department was camped there, and he had a little hay of which, at sixty dollars a ton, I was free to use a feed or two. We had traveled for fifteen hours with only one hour's stop, and I felt it was enough for the day. I off-saddled, threw Coea a dollar's worth of this princely forage, took a mouthful of chocolate, and fell asleep before I was ready for another. I awoke to find that a gale had sprang up and embedded me in sand like a fossil. At dusk I awoke again to a crash of thunder and at the same moment a torrent of rain. These are the moods of the desert in summer. I crept under a discarded piece of canvas where I ate a cold supper, then watered Coea and turned in. I was up at dawn and before sunrise we were on the march. The sand hills, which form a barrier several miles wide, had lately been rendered passable by the laying of a rough plank roadway, which begins at this point. Kawea is conservative, and this was something new, so there was an argument with Quirt and Spur before he would set foot on it. The planks had warped and loosened, and he was kept on a continual dance of nervousness. Still, they were a great boon, for without them, the five miles of shifting sand would have consumed as many hours. The scene was interesting and, in a strange way, beautiful. The dunes rose in quarter-circle curves, broken sharply away to a face of two angles, one steep, perhaps sixty degrees, the other low, not over fifteen degrees. Everywhere the same form was reproduced, the smooth arc, the sharp break at the edge, and the long slant at the foot. Along the faces and from the edges of fracture, a mist of sand was ever curling off and drifting in airy waves and feathers, following every contour of the dune. The whole mass of the sand was enveloped in this fairy-like veil, creeping like smoke, weaving in dainty frills and spirals. The vapor-like action was odd to see in a solid substance. The color was wonderful in purity and sheer power of mass. The smooth, large outlines of pale yellow, the water-like transparency of cobalt shadow, and the soft brilliance of the early morning sky, that was all. But the scale on which these elements were drawn, the unity and rhythm of line and color, gave it the effect of a triumph of simplicity and art. On reaching the eastern edge of the dunes, I came in sight of my next landmark, Pilot Knob. This is an isolated peak five miles west of Yuma and marks the junction of the river with the Mexican boundary. The usual route to Yuma here makes a circuit to the northeast, but I knew that the railway touched the river just east of this peak and that a road from Mexico came in there also. I therefore struck directly southeast for Pilot Knob, or as it was named by the Spanish explorers, the Cerro de San Pablo, the present day, no doubt, dates from the days of the fifties when the river was navigated by flat-bottomed steamboats carrying the traffic of the Arizona mines as far upstream as Ehrenberg. There was now some variety of scenery. To the east was the southern end of the Chocolates, a red and purple wilderness of low but rugged mountains, and beyond them the higher ranges of Arizona, strongly picturesque. A few palo verde and mesquite trees grew at the margin of the dunes, but they soon gave way to the everlasting creosote, burrowweed, and ocotillo with an occasional small ironwood. To my surprise, the ocotillos were in full leaf, the result of recent thunder showers. 
Today another storm was preparing, and it seemed likely to catch us miles from shelter. Several times that morning I noted a mirage, the common one of a sheet of pale blue water with dark bushes showing here and there, the exact appearance of a flooded expanse of wooded country. I stopped for an hour at noon under a bit of scrub that, ironically, offered shade. Betokening approach to the river, a butcher bird appeared and vented his chronic ill-temper in screeches of abuse. Three San Martins made better company. There is some spiritual quality in the happiness of all birds of the Swallow tribe. By this time, Pilot Knob had become a threatening volcano under sulfurous-looking clouds, and I resigned myself to a thumping deluge. There was a chance that, by hurrying, we might escape, so we pushed on and were soon rounding the shoulder of the mountain. It was just twenty-five years since I had last passed this point, entering California for the first time. Under these circumstances, the dark pyramid, like a quarter-century milestone, suggested serious reflections. But those clouds made it seem unwise to stand about moralizing, and again, self-examination was successfully dodged. Turning eastward, I made toward the railway. Soon there appeared an expanse of bright green, the willow-covered flats of the Colorado River. A mile or two brought us to the railway, and, as I expected, to a road which took us to the river. Rain or not, I halted for a half an hour to pay my homage to one of the great rivers of the North American continent, and perhaps the one most endowed with geological interest by reason of that marvelous canyon which may be named the greatest natural wonder of the world. The stream here takes a deep bend, and the bank where I stood commanded a good view. It was not a specially imposing sight, I had to confess. A wide, shallow flood of chocolate-hued water, bordered by stretches of brilliant green, these rising to low red banks over which one looked in vain for any break in the monotony of the level. For seventy miles from this point southward to the head of the Gulf of California, I doubt if there is anywhere an elevation of forty feet above the plain. Nearby were the remains of an adobe building which was once a stamp mill for grinding ore. A heron fished in the shallows with that air of magnificent calm which is so soothing to see, and a quarter of a mile away a torpid Indian moved about, doing something mysterious to the few stalks of corn in his little clearing. But after all, it was the Colorado River, and Kawea perhaps caught a reflection of my own interest, for he stood long in meditative pose. I wondered if he felt stirrings of the subconscious in gazing at this stream, on whose headwaters his forebears may have roamed and practiced those little arts which makes the western bronco so interesting and incomprehensible. At this point, the road from Lower California came in. I followed this for a couple of hours beside a levee, through thickets of willow and arrowweed, and by late afternoon came in sight of Yuma. The first feature to appear was the Indian school on the hill where the historic Fort Yuma once stood. Then the courthouse came in view, attractive in its setting of green, the rest of the town which lies lower remaining unseen. That I was on the reservation of the Yuma Indians was brought to notice by a wagon that met me, driven by a handsome fellow with hair hanging to his waist in the rope-like twists that marked the Yuma buck, and with two squaws dressed apparently in counterpanes of green, purple, and yellow. We crossed the river by the high iron bridge as the first raindrops plumped down, 
passed through a street or two of adobe or mud-and-pole houses and got into a livery stable just in time to escape a terrific downpour here i left cahuilla in good hands for a couple of days while i made up arrears of mail and looked about the old frontier town this place may be recognized by some of my readers in conjunction with certain well-worn jokes turning on warmth of climate the popular belief that yuma is separated from the nether regions only by a sheet of paper is probably an error though not a serious one the shade temperature did not go over a hundred and ten degrees while i was in yuma but it was now september and the back of the summer was broken the town is on the arizona side close to the junction of the colorado and the gila and a few miles east of the point where california of the united states and lower california of mexico meet at the river it is the puerto de la concepcion of padre garces and the site of the ill-fated mission of la purisima concepcion which was founded in seventeen eighty and came to a tragic end in the following year along with the neighboring mission of san pablo and san pedro ten miles down the river from earliest days this was a favorite place for fording the river and from eighteen forty nine for many years there was a regular service by ferry in eighteen fifty following the war with mexico a fort remains of which may be traced was established on the hill where the indian school now stands and the place became known as fort yuma in eighteen fifty two the first of the river steamers a sternwheeler appeared at fort yuma to the intense excitement of the indians who having assembled at the report of the prodigy beat a retreat upon its approach crying out that the devil was coming up the river blowing fire out of his nose and kicking up the water behind him with his feet one of the old steamers rests today on its laurels beside the bank while another has been transformed into a bungalow by an ingenious citizen the last of their skippers captain isaac polhamas may still be met about the streets of yuma and has vivid scraps of history to recount along with memories of more sober hue for instance of days and nights passed in getting free of one sandbar only to immediately lodge upon another several days were often spent in making ten or fifteen miles the town is interesting to anyone who cares for humble ways of life though scorned by people devoted to progress it reminded me of california's old capital monterey here as there one finds houses of all constructions and ages mixed there is not yet a choice residential section or knob hill charming name but adobe timber brick and stick in the mud are pleasantly jumbled together with here and there a garden of old-fashioned flowers date palms wave over the sidewalks mingling with cottonwoods and even wilding mesquites half-naked mexican children play in the dooryards of humble homes and indians use the main street as boldly as the banker the mayor or even the policeman altogether yuma comes near my idea of a model town pictorially the indians are the making of it the yuma men are athletic-looking fellows erect and well-featured the finest i think among the southwestern tribes and they have ideas of dress that result in striking ensembles one slim young man especially took my fancy he wore a close-fitting lilac tunic of knitted silk, closed at the throat with a scarlet ribbon. His hair hung in straight ropes to his waist, and was tied with a cord of bright green. 
For Sash, he had an orange silk bandana. Crude as this may sound, his lithe figure, open look, and general air of efficiency carried it off and made a really fine effect. The women did not evoke my enthusiasm, though they did my attention. They are much inferior to the men in physique, though perhaps up to the average of our western Indian women. Their features have none of the clean-cut look seen in the men, and as for the dress, gaudy is the only word. Over the usual shapeless wrapper, generally of blue and white check, the women, without exception, wear a square sheet of strongest hues known to the dry goods world, purple, grass-green, flame-color, scarlet, ultramarine, yellow. As a rule, these have a two- or three-inch border of some violent contrast, such as purple on orange or green on blue. These startling draperies are fastened at the neck and left flowing to the breeze. The head is usually encircled with a banda of red, and the straight hair, which is seldom so long as that of the men, hangs in a shock on the shoulders. A group of Yuma women in a lively wind would give a futurist some valuable ideas. A visit to the courthouse revealed a rather depressing state of things. A fair exterior, but within a pervading carelessness and a general air of spittoons. However, I was repaid by two views that I obtained, one from the room below the dome, a sort of dormitory furnished with a number of highly unattractive beds, provided, I suppose, for unfortunate jurymen. From here I could look out on all sides, to the green-bordered river winding its sinuous course toward the gulf, or to range beyond range of mountains, the red, yellow, purple, or mere haze, with an extraordinary peak, the Picacho, standing up like an artificial obelisk twenty miles to the north, and more to the east, the equally strange shape of Castle Dome, the Cabeza de Gigante, or Giant's Head. Overall, an evening sky where the clouds sailed in majestic squadrons. The other view was different, but fully as impressive. A human being, in fact, but of a kind that I supposed had passed away. He entered the building as I was leaving it, and I turned back to have another look. I knew he was a judge before I saw him go into the courtroom. Long, thin, goateed, shirt-sleeved, with a cigar and wide-brimmed Stetson at free and easy angle, he was the devil-may-care reprobate, Brett Hardian judiciary to the life, a sort of epic. Without doubt, he had a gun in his pocket, perhaps another in the leg of his booth. I could hardly keep from taking his photograph. I reckon him to be the last of a species. Yuma must be careful with him, and when he dies, he should be gently preserved under glass in some museum of American types. I have read of a person who was so grotesquely ugly that he looked as if he were walking about doing it for fun. I had that kind of feeling about my Yuma judge. One who thinks life dry without frequent thrills might find a summer evening in Yuma tedious. Yet I look back on certain after-dinner hours there as among the most profitable of my trip. After leaning for an hour over the rail of the bridge, Hoping that I was getting cool, I found it was a mistake, and took my way up the street to share the general fate and lounge among the loungers. Mesmerized by the rhythmic thump of a mechanical piano, I took a post opposite the motion picture theater. The main street of Yuma makes something of a motion picture itself. Three Indians with headdresses of purple, green, and pink 
sat inert on the curb in front of me smoking countless cigarettes while they made hilarious comments on passers-by men on quick-pacing indian ponies swung along one now and then jerking up at the sidewalk to exchange a remark or borrow the makings hard-featured men and girls bearing the terrible stamp passed and repassed also yuma's full complement of sales ladies escorted by their fellows a for-rent automobile drawn up close by showed several pairs of lightly clad legs and arms dangling over doors and seat-backs apparently disconnected from invisible owners a heavy-looking buck and his heavier-looking middle-aged squaw stopped to admire the colored posters of the play in twos and threes the citizens slouched into the show clerks in the latest church styles with their girls entering at the exclusive two-bit right while the common ten centers mainly mexicans and indians passed in on the left the rattle of the music roused in me an appetite last satisfied years ago and i thought forever for movies and when i saw the indian and squaw come back down the street and enter i walked over paid my dime and followed taking the seat next behind them my attention was divided between the play and my front neighbors the play already well on its course was the regulation kind of thing and the acting of the regulation stagey sort with full measure of the clenching of hands smiting of brows rolling of eyes and heaving of chests that mark the authentic movie drama the story doesn't matter there were stolen interviews a secret marriage a wealthy cruel parent reckless expenditure on cabs and telegrams a baby girl a death the good old landlady with the sides and risky buttons realistic scenes of high-low life in rio or somewhere a poodle and so forth but it was the one touch of nature that caught us all the baby grown to a sunny-haired romp of five came dancing downstairs and threw herself on grandpa's neck with prattle hugs and kisses it was then that our hearts gave way the buck's right arm had been lying along the seat rail behind his squaw's broad crimson back the other hand was in his lap at this point the free arm crept over and he clasped the hand of his woman while the arm behind drew her closer would that i might have reached over and wrung those dark and dirty paws i don't know why i didn't unless because i am english nor do i know why i should have thought it strange for two yuma indians to be at a level of sentiment that as i was slightly ashamed to find i had not left behind when the relentings explanations and reconciliations were done and child father and grandfather had been seen locked in embraces with great business by landlady and the poodle we lounged out and drifted down the street to the ice cream and billiard parlor where racial barriers fell again before a common passion for nickel ice cream sodas and so home to our respective beds that goliath of the cacti the saguaro which is such a noticeable feature of the arizona deserts exists in small numbers at two or three points on the california side of the river a few being found about fifteen miles above yuma as a rarity in california botany i thought it worth a side trip to see and photograph them i took the road leading to the laguna dam which was built a few years ago to bring a tract of land to the south of yuma under cultivation 
It was an interesting region that I passed through, considering what nature had meant it to be. On either side of a willow-bordered road there stretched fields of corn and hay, and pastures stocked with horses and cattle. It seems to be also a stronghold of the turkey tribe, for large bands of gobblers and peepers were wading about in the tall alfalfa, a head coming to the surface here and there like a periscope. The houses here were more like homes and less like camps than those of Imperial Valley. Many of these had little orchards, a thing one hardly ever sees in the Imperial, and nurseries of date seedlings were a common feature. Now and then a wagon passed us, filled with Indians bound for town. There was no mistaking those tulip-like costumes at any distance. I caught glimpses of such chic arrangements as magenta with orange and bottle green with mauve. The Quakers will never stand a chance with these people. One rather pretty girl in flame color and pea green made a fine display of gold-filled incisors as she went by, I fancy for my benefit. The contrast of bare, dirty feet with this show of wealth struck me as unique, perhaps also symbolic. It is a far advance in taste that is shown by the Mexican women with her dark plain colors and modest rebosa, or the Mexican girl's choice of pure and simple white. The Yuma men's favorite head covering is a handkerchief of some bright color, twisted into a close-fitting turban, but often, and more pleasing, one sees the banda, a strip passing around the forehead and fastened above the long ropes of hair. The dustiness of the road was mitigated by a green bordering of willows and alfalfa, highly approved by Cahuilla. Everywhere were canals, large and small, the cement headgates bearing the letters USRS, United States Reclamation Service, which are coming to mean so much to so many regions of the West. A dredge was lazily nosing with a scoop shovel into the bank of damp red earth, enlarging one of the smaller canals. On all sides were tokens of improvement, and, what is better, contentment. Though one or two men I talked to would add complaints to make on the score of their financial burdens under the government irrigation plan. Half a mile after meeting the main canal, which is forty or fifty feet in width, I came to the river and the headworks of the great Laguna Dam. From the weir that stretched across the wide stream went up a roar of falling water. The massive headgates bore again the mark USRS, like the symbol of a conqueror or the SPQR of ancient Rome. Adjoining the dam on the California side is a Mexican village on a site of a former mining camp of some note. It bears the pleasing name of Potholes, referring, I think, to the fact that the pay dirt was found here to occur in pots or pockets. It was too late for me to hunt saguaros that day. I camped amid a confusion of old boilers and other debris of the construction time, using for sleeping place the bed of a disused wagon, the only clean and level spot I could find. Mosquitoes kept me in misery, and I was glad when rising of an arc of waning moon told me that daylight and relief were at hand. At this spot, however, where a rocky bluff brings a break in the almost continuous thicket that borders the river, this pest was nothing in comparison with what I endured in other places. Whenever I entered the jungle of willow, cottonwood, and arrowweed, so delicious to the eye at a distance, I became the prey of myriads of these demons. The hot, dank air rings with their infernal pipings, and every moment is a misery. 
if equatorial africa is worse than this livingstone and stanley were heroes indeed a few miles to the north i found the outposts of the saguaros scarred and barren hills broke abruptly from levels strewn with fragments of rock of unusual hues and the walls of every gully showed broken veins and ledges that made me again ponder turning prospector there was no trouble in distinguishing the saguaros they stood like tall posts among the stunted shrubs that sprinkled the mesa varied only by small ironwoods palaverdes and mesquites where the shallow depression of a watercourse collected the scanty rainfall it was my first meeting with the saguaro and i was struck with its odd characteristics its typical shape is a slender straight column of equal diameter from top to bottom from this a few stumpy arms may break out and as these almost always turn upward parallel to the main stem a common effect is that of a gigantic candelabrum most of them however take original forms each one a study in the weird in close examination the plant is beautiful enough the stem and branches glossy dark green and regularly fluted and bearing in early summer white waxen blossoms which mature into edible crimson fruit the tallest specimen i found was a solitary old ragged fellow forty feet high with a grotesque array of excrescences an alaska indian would have hailed it as a wondrous totem pole other features of the landscape gave the same effect of abnormality the bare red plain was broken by distant hills of livid color and curious outline to north and east eccentric shapes gave the horizon a fantastic appearance of these castle dome was chief the perpendicular mass of its central column looking as if the mountain were spouting up into the sky nearer at hand were these vegetable monstrosities some straight and stark others running to all sorts of bulbous curiosities in color and shape every object was unexpected and unaccountable almost all the saguaros i saw were bored with one or more round holes about four inches in diameter my totem pole saguaro must have had twenty of them these are made originally by woodpeckers but are mostly annexed by the little elf owl micropallus whitneyi who turns out the unlucky carpintero as the spaniards call the bird of chips enlarges the hole or perhaps bullies the other bird into doing it for him and moves in sometimes no doubt finding a young carpenter or two all ready for the housewarming i searched a few of the holes in hopes of getting a sight of this midget of his tribe but if any were at home they had taken to the cellar End of chapter eighteen